0: Semester, you know that we've been working our way through the whole book of Revelation. And if you're just joining us uh, here at the tail end, you've kind of jumped in here at in some sense really the bright spot, the bright part of the book. I've been trying to argue with you. A lot of people have said that the book of Revelation is about way off distant stuff that's going to happen way off in the future. And I've been trying to show you week in and week out that it's, it's actually more about what's going on in the present tense. Namely, that the whole point of the book is to show you that things are not as they seem right here and right now. But with this chapter and with the chapters that follow, we really do get some of these future-oriented pictures and images. And I wanted to show you the pictures and the images that Revelation gives us about what the end of all history is going to look like. In some sense, it's kind, of too, it's kind of too good to be true. It's better than you and I could ever imagine. So let me just read this, and we'll kind of ease into this passage, and in the next couple weeks, we'll, we'll begin to go a little bit deeper into um, how glorious and wonderful these pictures really are. But let me read uh, Revelation 19. We'll just read the first ten verses. It says this. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let me pray before we consider it together, and um, then we'll look at it. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this night, for this chance to be together, this chance to um, sit underneath this glorious image of what human history is going to look like at the end of all time. And I pray that you would allow these words and these ideas uh, to soak deeper into our hearts so that we would leave this room different than how we came in more appreciative of who you are, more aware of your presence, more in awe of your beauty and wonder. Transform us right here and right now. We would ask and we would beg of you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you know that my wife and I have been working our way through all nine seasons of The Office. And this Sunday night, we... We finished it. We watched the very last, the finale. I'd never seen it before. It's how I spent Easter Sunday evening was watching this. And I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it or you you don't know how it particularly ends. But I will tell you this, that it ends with a wedding. And so you can imagine Easter evening, I'm on the couch with my wife, watching Netflix, in my pajamas, weeping like a child at the end of this show that we have just, you know, kind of fallen in love with, and it's over. It feels like a piece of me is missing now. But I always thought it was, I think it's interesting the way that they chose to end this show, because if you think about it, it's a show documenting the funny people and the quirky events of a paper company, and they end it with a wedding, That's kind of interesting. They end it with a wedding, this celebration of two people's love and commitment for each other, a party really, where um, family is reunited and old cast members are kind of brought back and kind of old friends are brought back to the table. And it's just, I think the reason why it got me, like the reason why it hit something deep in me, and I think the reason why it kind of, it kind of uh, like hits a chord with us. Is because I think that that, in some sense, is the, is the greater story that you and I are living. That is the story that is woven into the fabric of the universe. That human history itself will end in a wedding. In fact, this is what this passage is really all about. It gives you this picture of the end of human history, and it says it's a wedding. And if you are in Christ, every time you go to a wedding, you see people get married or something in a church or you know this beautiful outdoor thing. That, in some sense, is a picture of your destiny. And here's why this is so unbelievably important. I said this at the beginning of the semester. Don't expect any of you to remember it, so I think I'm going to say it again. That this book was written to a group of Christians that were undergoing extreme persecution. They were being uh, pushed out of their jobs. Their property was being confiscated from them. Their homes were being confiscated from them they were undergoing barbaric torture and murder like the kind of stuff that you like like kind of makes your stomach turn being sawed in half being beheaded lit, like being lit on fire while they're still alive like this is a historical reality is what the church went through in the first century and god gave them this crazy book called revelation to encourage them to motivate them to, to sort of stabilize them to say, keep going, to endure the suffering and the persecution that they're going through. And it worked. We know historically that it worked because in the first century when the church was undergoing the most extreme forms of persecution, it grew in size and in influence. And I think the reason why those Christians in the first century can look down the barrel of, I'm about to be sawn in half and for them to kind of move into that sort of torture with poise and with grace was because they got this passage. They knew that they were destined for something better. They knew that they were destined for a wedding. And so what I want to do is I want to just kind of camp on those, really those two ideas tonight, that human history ends in a party and human history ends in a wedding. And my hope is is that these two ideas will really infuse in you some hope and some encouragement as you go through this life, which really is pretty hard, which really is tough. So that's my, that's my agenda for tonight, to look at the fact that human history ends in a party and that human history ends in a wedding. So let's just look at these one at a time and then we'll be done. First, human history ends in a party. I don't know if you noticed when I read it, but there's like all of these hallelujahs and praises like all throughout this passage. What you have is you have this picture of the church just like joyfully celebrating and exciting, just praising Praising God. Look at verses uh, six. It says it it describes the sound of everyone as the roar of like tons of water, like you've heard like waterfalls, just like the thunderous roar of that. Even says it describes it like thunder itself, which I kind of picture like Neyland Stadium packed screaming everyone synchronized shouting at the same time that's thunderous applause and that's the picture here just loud excitement celebration so the question is what's the occasion for the party why are they celebrating <laughs> well look at verses 1 and 3 it's because it says god has destroyed the great prostitute of babylon if you weren't here last week you're like wth is that but the great prostitute we looked at last week, and the prostitute is sort of this image of something that embodies a life that is opposed to God. This is, this is this idea of evil and corruption that is trying to destroy everyone and everything. And she's destroyed. She's smoldering. You see the smoke rising up from her, and the church is erupting in celebration because she's done. And I think this is the same idea behind why we celebrate when someone has been cleared of cancer. You know, here's this thing in someone that you love, and it's threatening to destroy them. And something happens, and that thing goes away. And when that thing goes away, what do you do? You party, you celebrate. And so here's a picture of the end of human history and the cancer. You kind of take it to a bigger scale. The cancer, cosmically speaking, of greed and of lust and of selfishness and of evil and of disease and of death is gone. It's destroyed. And the best way to describe that is a party. And so imagine what that would look like. You don't have to be a Christian tonight to just sort of think with me of that as the, that's what you want. I know it's what you want because you read the news and you ache over it. Imagine a world in which pilots don't intentionally ground planes full of people into the mountains and kill everyone on board. Imagine a world in which terrorists don't roll into a university in Kenya and shoot up the place and target people specifically because they love Jesus. Imagine a world in which infants don't die and which relatives aren't lost. Imagine a world in which The friction that you feel in your relationships is no more. And you no longer feel the guilt and the shame and the loneliness and just the yuck that you and I can carry around with us. Imagine a world like that of unending joy, of celebration. All of that's gone. The best way to describe that is a party. Because that's what it is. But you and I uh, have been to some parties that have been kind of lame, especially when Christians throw them. And so at the end of human history, there's a bunch of Christians throwing a party. Is it going to be good? That's a big question. Well, let me give you a couple of images that the Bible gives you to describe what this party is going to look like. Because it's going to look like a gigantic feast. Here's just two little quotes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 25.6 says this. I'll read it. You can up later. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. So picture rich, succulent meat and bold, deep red wine. That's the image. Someone once told me, uh, I think this is clever, they said heaven is not going to be a low cholesterol affair. (laughs) And praise Jesus for that reality. Here's another one. Amos 9.13. It says, The days are coming when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. It's a picture of a renewed creation in which there's a a river of wine flowing through it. So if you think alcohol is sinful, heaven's going to be rough for you. Because wine is this picture, biblically speaking, I say that tongue-in-cheek, Mine is this picture in the Bible of joy, of salvation, of celebration. And here is this picture of a feast that never ends. A blowout banquet that is going to be so awesome and so big and never ending that it's going to make the best mixer or the best party that you've ever been to look cute. I mean, you, you picture like the biggest blowout party in New York City for like New Year's Eve and it's just going to, it's going to embarrass that. It's going to be the biggest nonstop blowout celebration awesome party where the joy never ends and the wine never runs out. Some of you are thinking, okay, that sounds fun, but um, I've got like tests tomorrow. And like who cares? Like how does this pie in the sky, wine in the party, never, you know, whatever kind of like affect my life? And here's how it affects your life. If you believe that this was true, that human history ended with a nonstop party where the joy never runs out, I think it would have to transform your life. And, and two things I want to draw out, two implications, is that it would, re- it would affect the way that you relate to your past and it would affect the way that you relate to your present. So think with me real quick. How would this affect the way that you relate to your past? Well, some of you, uh, my guess is, are feeling uh, bitter and jaded, and disappointed because you feel like you're never going to recover the glory that you've experienced in your past some of you feel like you really did kind of peak in high school like that was the time where I was in shape where I was popular everyone knew me, I was the star athlete I was the star musician, I was involved in student government, I was somebody then and then you come here nobody knows you Nobody cares that you were the quarterback. Nobody cares that you were the prom queen. And it could just feel like the glory of my past, I'll never recover again. Or maybe for some of you it's not about a claim. It's not about kind of your identity. Maybe it's about a relationship where you had this relationship in your past that was so awesome, was so wonderful, was so emotionally charged, it was so intense, and it's over now, and you can't get over it. Maybe it's been months, maybe it's been years after the fact and you're still looking back and you can't get over this relationship. In fact, it's so just a part of you that you compare every potential person that you could date up against that reference point, up against that standard, and you're paralyzed because you can't get over the past. The glory is in the past. Or maybe for some of you, you compare your present self with like your high school self spiritually. You think, man, back then... I was I so connected with God. I was so like, intense and emotional. I was so into it. I read my Bible at the time. I felt Him in worship, and I'm, I'm trying to recover that in college. And I just can't generate the same feeling. I can't connect in the same way now like I used to. And what I think this passage does is it, is it kind of invades that way of thinking and says your heart is facing in the wrong direction. You're looking at the past. But if you are a believer in Christ, your best days are in front of you. There is an unending party in front of you where the glory that the Father will bestow upon you then, it will make whatever glory you felt in high school just pale in comparison. The intimacy and the connection that you will experience with God in glory will will make what you felt in high school pale in comparison. The relationship and the intimacy that you will have with him then will make any relationship you felt in the past Pale in comparison. Your heart's facing in the wrong direction. This has to affect the way that you relate to your past. Because your best days are in front of you. But if you think about it, it also affects the way that you relate to your present. How would this affect the way that you live your life right now? Here's how. If you really did believe that your best days were in front of you, that human history ended with a nonstop blowout party in which the joy never ended... I think this would free us from the paralysis of that thing that we call FOMO. You know what I'm talking about? Fear of missing out. Because if you think about it, what's behind this idea of why we're so afraid of missing out on whatever is awesome is because we really do believe this life is all there is. And if this life is all there is, we have to wring out every last drop of happiness and pleasure now because it's going to go away. There's a limited supply. And that sort of pressure to maximize all of this joy and happiness now paralyzes you. And what this does is it puts enormous pressure on every decision that you make. Think about it. Even what you're doing this weekend, you're so paralyzed by the FOMO thing, you won't commit to doing anything unless you know that all of your friends are committing to do it as well. Because the worst thing that you can imagine is, I'm going to commit to doing this thing, and I go, and I'm stuck at this lame party, and there's something else somewhere you know, going on that's way better. And I'm at a place of lesser joy. And so we don't commit to anything, unless we know everybody's in. Or think about it, uh, this is why we put so much pressure on where we're going to live and who we're going to live with. Because we don't want to get stuck in a place of less joy. This is why we have crazy standards for who we're going to date, for who we're going to marry, because we don't want to get stuck in a relationship when there could be something better for us elsewhere. Now, are those important decisions? Yes. But I want you to see that in some sense we're just paralyzed by this fear that just kind of grips us into, I've got to get the most amount of joy and happiness out of life now. Because we really do believe this life is all there is. But... If you really did believe there is a future party coming of unending joy, you know what? This, it would free you from all of that. You could be stuck in a bad living situation and be okay with it. You could be single for the rest of your life and be okay with it. You could be friends with the girls in your sorority that may not be like the coolest, and enjoy them and love them and be okay with them. You can come to UT and it really may not be like the best 40 years of your life and be okay with it. Because there's a, better, there's a better party coming. This life is not all there is. And so you don't have to feel this pressure. I've got to wring every last bit out of it. But let me tell you this. If you are someone tonight that has not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your King... For you, this life is all that there is. And so you better suck all this, all the pleasure and all the happiness out of this life that you can because it's ending. This book says to you that everyone is invited to this wedding party. Everyone is. But if you refuse to come to Jesus, it's, it's like ripping up the invitation and throwing it away. And eternity for you will not be spent in a party. It will be spent in judgment. I don't... I like telling you that, but I feel like it's the truth. And everyone here is invited, and so the question is, will you come? Will you accept the invitation that is thrown out for you to come to this party? Because it's going to be amazing. Human history ends in a party, and it transforms your life. But there's one more idea here that I want to, I want to look at with you a little bit more briefly, and it's the fact that human history doesn't just end in a generic party, it's a wedding. It's a wedding party. Look at it, verses 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This This is a blowout wedding reception. And you are invited, not as a guest, but you are invited to be the bride. Which means that the whole point of eternity is going to be a nonstop celebration centering around the love that the groom has for you. And what I think is really just mind-blowing if you think about it is that there's all these different ideas that the Bible uses to describe the way that God relates to us. But he reserves this, this personal and the most intimate of relationships to describe the way that he relates to you. Because he doesn't just relate to you as a creator relates to his creation, though he does. I mean, that's true. He doesn't just relate to you the way that a king relates to his subjects, which is true. And he doesn't just relate to you the way that a father relates to a child, although that's true. He says, I relate to you the way that a groom relates to a bride. Which means the way that God has chosen to relate to you and to me is one of love and of devotion and of commitment and of desire of loyalty. I don't know if you've seen this early 1990s Robin Williams movie called um, The Fisher King. I think it's one of Robin Williams' kind of most famous movies, although it's kind of before a lot of y'all, y'all's time. But um, great movie in which he plays this Mentally unstable, kind of homeless man who is kind of has this obsession with this girl, and so he kind of follows her around and watches her and kind of it kind of stalks her, but it's not creepy, kind of like it sounds. But he watches her and so he eventually kind of he lands a date with her. And so they have this wonderful date together, and at the end of the night he's walking her home, and because she's you know she really struggles with confidence I and mean, she's so just kind of she's been burned by so many guys. She has all this baggage with, uh, in regards to men. And so he's walking her home to her apartment, and he's saying these really nice things to her. And let me just read you the, what the dialogue says. She says, That's a little old fashioned. You, you don't have to say those things considering what it is we're about to do. And he's like, What are we about to do? And she says, Well, you will want to come upstairs, and we will have a couple of drinks, and then you'll sleep over. And in the morning, you'll awake, and you will be distant, and you won't be able to stay for breakfast, and we'll exchange phone numbers, and then you'll leave and never call. And I'll go to work, and I'll feel good for the first hour, and then ever so slowly, I'll turn into a piece of dirt. And I don't know why I'm putting myself through this. And as she's saying this, Robin Williams just has this like pained look on his face, like, you're getting it wrong. And so she looks at him and she says, it was really nice to meet you. And then she just runs. <laughs> she just starts running down the street. And he's sitting there and he's just kind of taking it all in. And you know, she goes a little ways and he, he says, wait, wait. And he calls out for her and he starts running after her. And he eventually catches up with her right as she's kind of on the, her front steps. And he kind of calms her down and he says, listen, listen. And here's what he says. He says, I'm not, I'm not coming up to your apartment. That was never my intention. I don't want just one night. I have a confession I have to make to you. I'm in love with you. And she gives him this look like, okay, that's, I see what you're doing here. And so he, pull, he kind of puts up his finger to say, let me finish. And here's what he says he says, I love you, but not just from tonight. I've known you for a long time. I know that you come home from work at noon every day. I know you stop and get that romance novel at that bookstore. I know that you get a jawbreaker before you go back into work. I know that you hate your job and you don't have many friends. I know sometimes you feel a little uncoordinated and don't feel as wonderful as everybody else. And I love you, I love you. And I think you're the greatest thing since spice racks. And I'll be knocked out several times if I can just get that first kiss. And I won't, I won't be distant. And I'll come back in the morning and I'll call you if you let me. Of course, she just kind of melts. In real life, that'd be kind of weird and a little creepy. (laughs) But in the moment, the reason why she melts is because, I mean, just imagine. What would it be like to hear somebody look at you and say, I know everything about you. And I love you. I mean, imagine hearing Jesus say that to you. As weird as that may sound tonight. Because you have things in you and things that you have done that you feel like push him away from you. You've done things, you've experienced things, you've thought things, you've felt things. Things have been done to you, and which you feel like pushed Jesus away from you. But the point of revelation is to show you things are not as they seem. Because here is Jesus looking at you and me tonight saying, "I know everything about you, and I love you. I know that you feel insecure. I know what makes you feel dirty and unworthy." I know about the failed relationships that you blame yourself for. I know about your addictions. I know about your secrets. I know about your struggles. I know everything. And I love you. I'm for you. And I won't be distant. The cross shows you simultaneously that he knows you and he loves you. He knows everything about you. That's why he had to die for you. And he loves you so dearly, that's why he was glad to die for you. And if you were to get that into your bloodstream, that he has given up his life for you, that he pursued you unto his own death, don't you think that would change you? I mean, how do you imagine God? I think we imagine God not as this ferocious, aggressive lover that comes for you, but as this strict, stingy, mean boss that's always disappointed. And I think that's probably why, for those of us in this room that are Christians, our Christian life feels so dry so, many t- so often. Why it feels just so guilt-ridden and heavy and boring. Because so we feel like we're always disappointing this boss. But what if we've gotten it wrong? What if he's not a boss, but he's your lover? And that language may make you feel uncomfortable, but that's what the Bible clearly communicates. Don't you think that would make you walk into the kind of suffering that they experienced in the first century with poise and with grace, knowing there is a wedding on the other side of it? Don't you think you would walk to class with maybe just a little bit of a bounce in your step? Hold your head a little bit higher as you go through this life to know that the king of the universe loves you and has given up everything in order to get you. Look, I'll end with this. This past January, I took my daughter, well, my wife and I took our our four-year-old daughter, Zoe Kate, to the play Annie, which was playing at the Tennessee Theater. And so you can imagine there are hundreds of little girls in red dresses everywhere. And we're there watching. It's awesome. You know, our daughter's really into Annie these days. And so... We go, and she loves the first, you know, half. And intermission comes, and it's time, it's time to go potty. So she's got to go potty. So I'm, I take her, and we go to use the restroom. But of course, like the ladies' room, you can imagine has like this line of 800 people lined up to it. So I do what the brilliant dads do: is we go to the men's room with our daughters, and we go in. So we go in there, and there's some guys, and there's some you know little girls in there doing their thing, and so we wait for a stall, and we open up, we go in, Zoe Kate sits down, I just kind of stand there, I'm kind of letting her do her thing. And all of a sudden, she just starts belting out one of the songs from Annie. (laughs) Tomorrow! Tomorrow! And at first I'm just like, oh, this is making me feel uncomfortable, and so I thought it was kind of cute after a second, so i "Oh, you know, whatever. Let her sing, we're at Annie. And really, after probably 20 seconds of her just this monologue shouting in the in the bathroom, the girl in the stall next to her joins in and starts singing along with her. So now these two little girls are like in unison singing tomorrow. And then you hear this third voice on the other side of the bathroom, and before long, like all these little girls in the bathroom are just singing this song. You could have never planned this in a million years years, there was this total spontaneous just moment of wonder and glory there in the men's bathroom. All these little girls singing. And the reason why I wanted to end with that image of the men's bathroom is because this picture, this passage gives you this picture of all of these saints at the end of time singing, just belting out the song for the glory and for the honor and for the love and the wonder of their groom. And the question I want to leave you with tonight is this: Will you join in? Will you join into the fun and like the joy and the celebration of what it looks like to be linked up to a love relationship with Him? Will you join in? The angel said to me, Write this: Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me pray. Father, you have invited us, you have called us you so desire for us to be a part of this party, to be the recipients of your great love. Father, whatever we're thinking or feeling or wrestling with tonight, I pray that you would melt away our fears, that you would put aside our doubts and our skepticism, and enable us, in spite of our cynicism and in spite of our hard hearts, to really be melted before your ferocious love for us knowing that it doesn't, all of our junk doesn't push you away, but it draws you closer. As we find ourselves kind of worn out and exhausted and anxious and ready for the semester to be done, I pray that you would meet us and encourage us with this hope of this future party, of this future wedding, and transform the way that we leave this room tonight. We thank you for your great love, and we love you in return. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Hello. Right.